We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. If you take a look here at Mark chapter 15, I'm going to have to refer to my notes a little bit more this morning, so suffer with me because uh, we're going to look at the, all the, the six hours that Jesus spent on the cross. And uh, we're going to look at it in stereo from all four Gospels, just what took place in those six hours from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock on a Friday in the spring. It is by verse 21, says in verse 20 that they led him out to crucify him. And what it is now, it's about 8.30 on a Friday morning. It's the beginning of Passover week for seven days of eating unleavened bread. Now, overnight, Christ has been tried six times. He's been found innocent of sedition six times. He has been slapped, he's been beaten, he's been spit upon. His beard has been plucked from his face. He has been imprisoned and he has been scourged. Jewish law said that a man could be beaten uh, no more than 40 licks, but it was Roman lictors that beat him with cat of nine tails with bits of metal that were embedded. And often men would die from scourging. And then they pressed thorns down into his brow and they took a reed and they beat them into him. And they played what was called the game of the king where soldiers would surround you and say, they would blindfold you and say, who hit you? And they would beat you from one side of the circle to the next. And then <clears throat> uh, Pilate brought him forth and made an example. Behold the man, behold your king. We have no king but Caesar. I wash my hands. His blood be on us and our children. And they took a, a wooden crossbeam, put it on his shoulders, and he had to carry it about a quarter mile from the fortress Antonium to the northern entrance of Jerusalem, outside the gate. Christ had to suffer outside the gate because the Bible says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And so they took him outside the gate, and they did it. Essentially, it was being killed at um, 6.35 and 35. It's the most public place on the most public day, Passover, where an entire nation would gather together, the nation of law. And it's as if God put him where everyone could see him. Paul said to King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. You saw them. He goes in verse 21 to make his journey to the cross. And he goes down under the weight. He had lost too much blood. And no one volunteers to help him. No one volunteers even to be identified with him. And so he goes alone. He had spent all of his life around crowds that would fight to touch him. Now they fight not to, and they withdraw. And in verse 21, it says, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Cyrene in uh, 
that day was Cyrene. Today it is called Libya. It's in North Africa. Large contingency of Jews. The name Cyrene is mentioned five times in the book of Acts. <clears throat> and there was a Jew from North Africa. His name is Simon. He's coming there for the Passover. And it says in 21, he is a passerby coming from the country. He was pressed into service. That means they shanghaied him. And they said, no one will carry his cross and we can't go on without cross, without the death of this man. Now you carry the cross. And so he does. He had, he's pressed into service because he didn't want to do it and he has no idea what is happening. But he is about to get the best seat to the most significant act in human history. It's like the story of the guy at the Battle of Midway that got shot down and he was in a life preserver bobbing in the sea watching the Battle of Midway. He had the best seat in the house. And so this guy has the best seat in the house. He is the first man to bear the cross. Uh, what happened to him? Why does it say he is the father of Alexander and Rufus? Who cares who Simon of Cyrene's kids are? Well, Mark wrote to the Romans, and those in Rome knew who Rufus and Alexander were. I want to show you something. Keep your finger right there and look at Romans 16, where Paul is saying hello in Rome to all of the people that in the... Uh, first century left to do mission work in a place that was uh, the hub of the Roman Empire. Be like doing mission work in New York. You know that the whole world is there to some degree. And so in verse, in chapter 16 and verse 13, Paul says, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord and his mother in mind. The name Rufus is never ever mentioned ever again in the New Testament. It is mentioned as the son of Simon of Cyrene writing to the Romans and it is mentioned in Romans 16. Uh, there is never a phrase that is used like this. Uh, his mother and mine. What happened was apparently Simon of Cyrene did what was loath to him and he watched this occur and he stayed there and he got converted at Pentecost and said there were men there from Cyrene. Uh, he saw, he stayed, and he got converted. And his family got converted. Uh, there was a fellow named Alexander that was a first century martyr. Perhaps he is dead by this time. Rufus is simply called a choice man in the Lord. That this is a, a classic noble Christian is the son of the man who bore the cross. And it says his mother and mine, that is the wife of Simon of Cyrene. She is called his mother and mine. She became a second mother to another man who would bear a cross, Saul of Tarsus. And so I would have loved to sit at that breakfast table with Simon of Cyrene, his wife, the apostle Paul and Rufus. And so this became a classic family. He got converted, his wife got converted, his sons got converted, and they took under their wing a struggling Jew that was suffering named Saul of Tarsus, and he became like a foster son. So it's interesting that J. Sidlow Baxter years ago wrote a book called The Man Who Bore the Cross. And uh, this is what happens when you follow the cross. 
he is like all of us in a sense, that he is clueless as to what is happening. Secondly, he is unwilling to do the distasteful act he is told to do. Thirdly, he is forced into service, and so were you and I. Amen. God overwhelmed us and apprehended us, and we became his servants. And yet, as he follows, the longer he follows, the more transformed he becomes until where at the end of his life, he enters into the death of Christ and his resurrection. And so that's what happens to people who follow the Lord. They end up blessing their marriage, they bless their kids, and they make their life uh, a monument to Christ, the man who bore the cross. Back in verse 22, they brought him to a place, Golgotha. Never says it's a hill, it simply says it's the skull, Golgotha. In Latin, it is called Calvary. And so they brought him to the place where was apparently the place of crucifixion. It is a place, Jerusalem, that first occurs in Genesis 14. Y'all remember a fellow named Melchizedek? Yes. He is from Salem, ancient Jerusalem. And it is there that Abraham, the father of the Jews, honors his priesthood. Melchizedek is king and priest of Jerusalem. Do y'all know another man who was king and priest of Jerusalem? It is Jesus. And it is here that Abraham offers up Isaac on Moriah, which is a hill that Jerusalem is built upon. And it is here that a prophecy was made. Father, where's the lamb? The Lord will provide for himself the lamb, Jehovah Jireh. And so it is, became a prophecy that on Moriah, God would provide the lamb. And David, whenever he took a census he shouldn't have taken to show his own glory and God sent a plague in Israel, David on Moriah said, God, kill me. These sheep have done nothing wrong. God says, offer a sacrifice. So he buys land from a fellow named Aruna. And it was on that land that sacrifice was made for the people. And later on, it is on that land that Solomon would build the temple where for a thousand years, the lamb would be sacrificed. And now Christ comes to fulfill it on Mount Moriah. It is interesting that no one understood that there's only one nation and one city on one hill by one man, one sacrifice by which men can approach God. And it was occurring right in front of the nation and no one had a clue what was happening. Uh, it was also on Moriah that a ram, a male sheep, was caught in the briars by his horns. And it was here that that, that animal was sacrificed for Isaac from whom would come the Jewish nation. And so it's on Moriah that a sacrificial male is offered who bears a crown of thorns. And that occurred in about 2000 BC. And so in verse 23, they crucified him. They offered him, tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Wine mixed with myrrh made a sedative. 
And uh, they offered it to him because Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me myrrh for my food and sour wine for my drink, one at the beginning and one at the end of the cross. And it was a sedative to make men easier to handle. Just like whenever they give the lethal injection, the first thing they give you, you want to make notes on this, <laughs> is they give you something to make you easy to handle. And Jesus turned it down because there is no sedative in hell. And so he will not take it. And he is not difficult to handle. If a little girl had drawn, drew, driven the nails, he would not have moved. He said, the cup the Father gives me, shall I not drink it? And so he will give no sense that he is trying to escape. And no one understood that scripture is being fulfilled right in front of them. It is here, it says in 24, they crucified him. And it is here that he offers the first of seven words on the cross. He prays for the men driving the nails, the Romans. Peter said, you crucified him by the hands of wicked men. The Romans, the Jews drove the Romans and the Romans drove the nails. And Christ prays for these Gentiles. And he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, literally turn them loose. They know not what they do. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Christ was a wisdom which none of the rulers of this world has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so God, in a sense, shows mercy to the Gentiles that are watching. And it is a mercy that will follow Christ, that God's wrath has been stayed toward the non-Jew. It has been stayed toward the ignorant. It has been stayed toward the Gentiles. Are you glad? Yes. That those who were just as ignorant are not brought into judgment because they know not what they do. That is why Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Go tell them what I have done. In verse 24, they crucified him and they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was considered an executioner's right that whatever is left, you can take. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my clothing and for my garments do they cast lots. You ever seen one of those Nova specials or, or uh, Smithsonian specials on Africa or Brazil where you'll see a wildebeest or a buffalo that is set upon by a pride of lions. It's hard to watch because they eat him alive. Christ is dying and while you're dying, guys are shooting dice for your sandals. They're shooting dice for your undergarments. They're looking at your seamless robe and they're talking about you as though you were already dead. They have no clue what they are doing. They are actors in a script. And like a lot of us, they are trying to get the physical things of life, sandals, underwear, and a head covering and a, uh, a robe while they are standing in the shadow 
of divinity. Does that sound like you in your past days? Here was the Son of God offering you life. You were always on the brink of some heart attack, some stroke that you'd have been in the lake of fire. And you had no, there were probably churches within a mile of you all around, Christians all around that you wouldn't listen to because you were too busy trying to get underwear, socks, and a hat. That's us right there. And so in verse 25, it was the third hour. It's nine o'clock when they crucified him. The Jews had hoped that it would happen at about six. They're behind schedule. And as a result, what they didn't want to happen has happened. A huge crowd at 635 and I-35 is gathering. They're coming in the northern gate, the Damascus gate. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge. You would put above, above a man a charge. This is what he did. The charge says, the king of the Jews. The Sanhedrin tried to stop this and said, no, don't put the king of the Jews. Put, he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. It stands. And so that was the charge. He did not fulfill their expectations. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They had no idea who he was. Does this sound like us? Many of us did not become Christians because we couldn't see that God would give us any perks. We could not see any physical blessings. Have you trusted Christ? No, I haven't. And I think that's good for some people, the ignorant, the stupid, and the children. But I myself, you know, I've been to college. And so I, I don't need one. And so that's the way that men are, that he's not the savior I want. He's an embarrassment to me. Talking about sin, talking about truth, talking about God, talking about atonement. It was uh, Erasmus who said to Martin Luther, the great Renaissance man, Erasmus, to the great Reformation man, he said, how can you believe that God demands blood in order to forgive sins? And Luther said, I think you make God too human. He is holy. You and I forgive sins because we are sinners and we've been forgiven. Amen. God forgives sins because his son died. And so in verse 27 and 28, it says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 28 is questioned whether it's in Mark. It is for certain that it is in Matthew, and it's even as certain that it's in Isaiah 53. That he was, the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with his trans, with transgressors. Isaiah said that Christ would die among transgressors. He became one of us. The creator became part of the creation and he has to die for what it did against him. It was R.C. Spruill who said, the covenant maker became the covenant breaker, that covenant breakers might be seen as covenant keepers. Or as C.S. Lewis said, uh, the son of God became the son of man, that sons of men might become sons of God. 
And so he takes his place. Judas had to kiss him because he looked like everybody else. He laid aside his glory and became one of us. In verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him. They're cursing him for the crime of claiming to be the Messiah, when obviously he is not. Because if he were the Messiah, like Naaman said, he would wave his hands over the place and heal the leper. I can't believe that this common man is the Messiah. And so they cursed him. I want a God who will help me lose that 20 pounds and a God that will make my kids better and will give me a raise and get rid of all my diseases. I want one that'll give me strokes. So they would not take this God. Uh, they said, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They're passing by because they're all going into Jerusalem. Because Hebrews 13 says, the blood of the, the bodies of those animals offered as a sacrifice for sin are offered outside, are, are burned outside the camp. Christ, that he might sanctify the people with his blood, suffered outside the gate. He is unclean. And so as you come into the holy city, you pass this trash dump. And there you see this man dying outside the gate. And they mock him. You who said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. They misquote him. What Christ said was destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. When he died, God was going to raise from the dead a new place of meeting. And it would be called the church the body of Christ. And so they misquote scripture about the greatest act of history and the face of the one who is enacting it. And no one has a clue what they're doing. In verse 30, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you're going to save others, you can't save yourself. Amen? If you're going to save others, someone has to die. No one had a clue. In verse 31, in the same way, the chief priest, the seminary profs, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Someone must die, and they could not understand it. And verse 32, in the same, I'm sorry, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified were with him were also insulting him. The thieves insulted him. Why? Because they wanted a savior and they couldn't understand he was dying? No, they wanted, they said, save yourself and us. Do you think they wanted to be saved spiritually so they could now serve God with fullness of heart? They wanted to be saved so they could go back to stealing. That's all. And so whether it's common men, chiefs, priests, scribes, or criminals, everybody's in the dark as to who he is.
And verse 33, at the ninth hour, it is now 12 o'clock noon, straight up. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. No, I'm sorry, verse 33. When the sixth hour came, 12 o'clock, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. What's interesting is, now stay with me, the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament, points to the coming of the Messiah. All of the New Testament points back to what happened when Messiah came. The part of his life that is given 40% of the Gospels is the Passion Week and his death. If Christ doesn't die, you have no Messiah. And so this is the essence of the Bible, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock on a Friday. That's when Christ will not suffer at the hands of men. He's done that. He's going to suffer at the hands of God. This is where God so loved the world that he will give his only begotten son. And so it's here that is the vortex of the Bible. You're in the nuclear reactor of the Bible. You're in the crossroads of eternity. God's eternal plan will be creation, the fall, incarnation, redemption, salvation, return, kingdom, and eternity. Right in the vortex of that candelabra, of that menorah, is Christ and his death. And so if we miss these three hours, your Bible disintegrates. What happened? Answer, we don't know. It won't tell you. The sixth hour came, yeah, yeah. Darkness fell, yeah, yeah. Until the ninth, and at the ninth hour he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. What happened? That's where he that knew no sin became sin. It's where God saved you, right here. And you're not allowed to see it. What else in the Bible can you see up to, but you can't go in? The Holy of Holies. You can see it, but you can't go in. You can see it, but you can't go in. What happened? This is where God looks down upon the Ark of the Covenant at his violated law. And he sees it through on the top. It's called the mercy seat, the helasterion. And there is the blood of a spotless sacrifice. And God sees our sin through his blood. And so you can't come into that. And so it occurs and we can't see it until... In just a second, the, the sky is going to go dark. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. And there was, God said, gave you light and said, uh, and, and the, said, it is good. And there was evening and morning, one day. Light is good. Ecclesiastes, it's good for a man to see the light. But here it grows dark. Now, is this an eclipse? No, because Passover is on a paschal moon. It's full moon. So you got the sun and you got the uh, earth. You got the moon. It's the one time you can't have an eclipse. It goes dark because that only happens on two occasions. It happens in Egypt when there is death on the firstborn. It occurs in the tribulation when there is the judgment of God. 
and it occurs right here. This is the judgment of the firstborn. And so the sky goes dark and we never get to see it. Right before this happens, however, there are the second words of Christ. One of these thieves keeps watching him and he hears people curse him and the lights come on. Maybe from his Sunday school training, Awana, uh, wherever he was, all of a sudden, vacation Bible school, the lights come on and he sees him and he says to his buddy, and this is called by John Calvin, the greatest act of faith in the Bible. It is said that when this thief died, he was the greatest theologian who ever lived until his day. He looks at his buddy and he says, do you not fear God? What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of God. He says, don't you fear God? Meaning, son, we're about to stand before God in just a second. Do you not fear God? And then he said, we're receiving justly what we deserve for our sins. He recognizes not only are we about to die, we're sinners. He's never been willing to say that. We're sinners because we got the indictment hanging above him. Thief. We sinned against God. We sinned against man. We've broken him. We've coveted. Don't you fear God? We're receiving what we deserve. And then what's the next thing? You got to recognize God, recognize yourself. Then you got to recognize Christ. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. This is not just a man. This is a sacrifice. The lights came on. And he turns to Jesus because his first witnessing opportunity wasn't real successful. <laughs> and he turns to Christ and there's a conversation. Now, how only Luke records it. How Luke got it, we don't know. But he, I think, sat down with an executioner and said, tell me what happened. He turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. When he said, remember me, what that means is I'm not going to recite on how, yes, I was a thief and a disobedient child and a bad Jew and a bad citizen. But really, I gave to, uh, you know, Samaritan's purse. I, I did all these things. Is that the way we are? I, I did all these things. He says, remember me. All I want you to do is to remember that before I died, I confessed you. It's called faith alone. And so he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knew Christ was not dying for what he did. He knew Christ was dying for somebody else. He knew that, Christ, how can you come in your kingdom when you're dying on a cross? He knew Christ was gonna rise from the dead. He knew Christ was gonna ascend and go into glory. He knew he was gonna come after he had established a time of salvation. What's it called between the death of Christ and his return, the saving act of God? What age is that? The church age. He could see it. When you come in your kingdom, that's eschatology. You're gonna rule. He knew his theology proper about God. He knew his Christology about Christ. He knew his anthropology about man, his harmardiology about sin. He knew about soteriology that one has to die. And he understood that Christ was going to rise from the dead. He was going to ascend and save. That's called uh, ecclesiology, the church. 
He knew he was going to return. That is called eschatology, and he would rule. He was the greatest systematic theologian of all time in one sentence. That's it. And so, what do you think? Can you live in sin all your life and in the last couple of hours trust Christ and go to heaven? I remember one time at Denton Bible, we had a, an elder got up, Jim Busso, and he talked about his uncle that was an alcoholic, had ruined his life, ruined his liver, ruined his everything. And he died. And he said, before he died, we went in and saw him and we pleaded with him. And he said, he cried and he prayed with us to receive Christ as Savior. And a couple of days later, he was dead of cirrhosis. And he said, but I know where he is. And we all cheered. All right. I was over at the Optimist Gym that we did. And a guy turns next to me who was visiting. And he goes, don't touch Jeff, yeah. <laughs> I said, what? He said, this guy, he don't realize that I'm, you know, the head dog, you know. This guy, he lives like a drunk all of his life. In the last hour, he sneaks into heaven. Don't they just chap your backside? I start moving away. <laughs> well, that's what happens to this thief. This is what happens to this thief. He knows he can forgive it all. Amen. Anybody in here a professional thief? Just stand up. Would you? Okay. <laughs> God forgave him. What's his name? We don't know. When you go to glory, look for him. You see him. You know what others, remember Christ's response? It wasn't like you got to die and go through purgatory. He said, today. Today. Today, and it's interesting because in the New Testament, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Uh, Today in the Bible is a reference to the church age. It's like time has frozen. It's today. And he says to him, today, you're going to die and you're going to be with me. So he says, whenever you're going to come, whenever that is, he's kind of fuzzy on it. Remember me today. Me, you, paradise together. He, got, he answers it Exceeding abundant beyond all that he asks or thinks. You're going to be with me. Incidentally, in the Old Testament, when you die, it always says you're gathered to your people. This is the first time in the Bible that paradise is mentioned. And it's this guy. He broke the womb. Christ goes in and then this guy follows. It could be really cool. Some have think that when you died in the Old Testament, you went to be with Abraham's bosom. Christ died and he led them forth. It would have been really neat if this guy appears in glory and there's nobody there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then Christ returns all of a sudden with the entire saved host of, of the elect of Israel. And uh, the guy said, where y'all been? <laughs> But he's the first guy. You know what paradise means? Peridikos. Peri means around, perimeter. Uh, dikos uh, is a, uh, a wall, a dike around. And in those days when you would build the hanging gardens are a paradise, okay? With irrigation, with oases, with date palms, a paradise. That's what it was. This guy is going to go from 
the skull to paradise. Just like that. So this guy knew his theology because he knew Jesus. When a man turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. And so, and, and they also, Christ then does something else. The, the job of a faithful Jewish man was to take care of mama. If any man does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Christ is the firstborn son. Mary is left. Joseph isn't there because for Christ to become king, Joseph couldn't be alive because he was the king. He had to pass away so Jesus could assume the role. So Joseph is gone. Mary's by herself. And Jesus looks at her and looks over at John and says, woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Take care of mama. John would have said, yes, sir. And now with mama taken care of, he can leave. So he lives his life right to the very end, thinking about Gentiles, that Jew, and that woman. If you were dying, where would your mind be? Well, Christ is with everybody else. One author said, I would have followed him if he was just a man. This is a man. Well, in verse 33, there is darkness. And there it says in Matthew, there is terror. No one understands what's happening. And it stayed there for three hours. You kept looking at the wrath of God. And in verse 34, at the ninth hour, you see the fourth saying of Christ. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, not Abba, Father, but my God, my God. And he quotes from Psalm 22 about the suffering servant. Why have you forsaken me? This is very important because he announces two things. A, I am forsaken by God. Secondly, why? He knows why, but he lets it known. It's for no reason of myself that I'm dying. He leaves that question there for everybody to answer. Why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? Write your name. That's your name. It was me or it was him. I'll take him. And so Robert Browning called it Emmanuel's orphaned cry. When I was a young pastor, back before the earth's crust had hardened, back in 1974, before I was married, I preached on this text Asbury United Methodist Church. And I quoted Robert Browning. This was Emmanuel's orphaned cry like a child in the dark. And uh, I completely broke down right there. It was like all the slats were pulled on me. Now I have hardened into a professional speaker. <laughs> so, in verse... 35, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, but no one understood. They all think the opposite. 
He's forsaken you because you're sinful. Nobody understood what he meant. And everything he does, only the thief and the executioner have a clue what happened. And maybe Simon of Cyrene. And verse 24, let's see. No, I missed some. Here we go. Uh, where am I? 35. The bystanders heard it and they misunderstood. He's calling for Elijah, meaning he's calling for help. He's trying to get out of this. They, they saw his words of righteousness as words of weakness. And someone ran and filled a sponge. The reason they do that is that uh, Christ had something to say. It's the, the fifth thing. Well, the sixth thing he wants to say is, uh, it's finished, but he can't. Because Psalm 22 says his tongue cleaves to his jaws and his, his strength is dried up like a pot's shard. Whenever you take a ceramic pot and smash it, he was smashed. And so he wants to cry out, but he can't. Uh, you guys, anybody play high school football where you got cotton mouth? And you can't speak. He can't speak. His tongue cleaves to his jaws. All he can say is, I thirst. Because he has been under the heat of judgment. And so he says, I thirst. It's incidentally the same word as when a man killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass on a place called Ramoth-Lehi, the hill of the skull. And he looks to heaven and he says, after such a victory, shall I die of thirst? I thirst. And God opened the hill of the skull to become in Hakor, the spring of the one who calls out, Samson. And so they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. It's interesting, whenever you applied the blood of the lamb at Passover, you put it on hyssop. You didn't touch it with your hands and you put it on there. When Christ dies, no one touches what they put to his lips. They put it on a reed, it's like imputation. And so the sour wine, we get the term winegar, vinegar. They put this to his lips. The highest of all uh, virtues in Israel is that of hospitality. The psalmist said, they gave me myrrh for my food and they gave me vinegar for my drink. Let their table become a snare and a trap. Let it become a, a place of stumbling and of weakness that God is gonna return this on their heads. And so they put this vinegar to his mouth. He quenches his thirst. And now in 37, all of his energy is given to this final cry. He uttered a loud cry. John tells us what the cry is. It's finished. Telos means complete. Telephone, telegraph, television. It goes from one end to the other. To telos stai. There's a verb tense when you take the initial consonants and put it at the beginning of the word. To telos it means something is finished permanently. 
And so he doesn't just say it's finished. He says, it's finished forever. What is finished? God is satisfied, sin is paid for, man is reconciled, the law is appeased, and prophecy is fulfilled. It's done. You don't have to do anything ever again. We now have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood or the flesh of Christ. He has, when he died, his side opens and now the veil parts and we can come. Is there another place in the Bible that a man uh, goes to sleep and his side opens and a bride comes forth? Adam, this is the last Adam. His side will open and a bride will come forth. And so he uttered a loud cry to Talestai and he breathed his last. It tells us in another gospel what he said. It's what a woman would teach her child a prayer that was like, now I lay me down to sleep. It was from a psalm. And it says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. So you teach little boys. He doesn't call him Eloi. He says, Abba, my father. He dies like he lives, faithful to the end. In verse 38, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. It goes dark. There is an earthquake. Heavens and earth respond in witness. And now the revealed religion, the temple is broken. When that veil is broken, all the temple is how to approach a holy God prior to the death of Christ. Once that veil is torn the temple had a rod thrown to it. When I was a kid, my daddy would always tell me about, you better not run that car so fast, you're gonna throw a rod. I still don't know what that means, but it was bad, all right. What happened right here is we threw a rod. The temple cannot be repaired. The old covenant disappeared. It's like you have a shadow as your hand approaches. When he said it's finished and the veil was torn, your hand touches the object, it's arrived, and the shadow is gone. Nothing but the substance is here. So, in any way that you are gonna try to approach God on your own, it's done, it's finished. And in verse 39, the centurion who sees it, standing right in front, the Greek says, standing opposite him, the guy that's in charge of the execution gets right in front of him and watches. And he says, surely this man was innocent. This was the son of God. Now that's what you call firsthand observation is the executioner. Uh, he knew, and it, it says in John, or uh, no, I'm sorry, this verse, in verse 39, seeing the way he breathed his last. This man is a soldier. He understood being under authority. You remember what a centurion said to Christ? 
I'm a man under authority. I say, go and he goes. I say, come and he comes. You say it, it's done. They understood authority. He watches this man. My God, my God, you've forsaken me. It's finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. It says in John he, that he uh, bowed his head and he breathed his last. In other words, he doesn't collapse and die. He breathes his last. Into thy hand I commend my breath, my ruach, my spirit. And he's like a soldier. I did it. I did what you told me to do. And that soldier said, that man is innocent. He did this as an act of obedience to God. If you don't understand, go on to glory and ask for him. He's around there. He and the thief are hanging out. Okay. Isn't that interesting that you can get the, the guy that kills and the guy who gets killed and they become your first Christians and the guy that you had to press into service. Truly, this man was the son of God. It's like he inaugurates this through his veil, through the flesh, which is, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10. Uh, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. The author of Hebrews said when he died and his flesh was parted, it was like the way to God was opened. This is the ultimate sci-fi incident from the Old Testament. In the day that you eat it, you will surely die. You die. When you do that, darkness comes and it does. And we're always waiting for light, the light of the world. And here it happens. This man dies. And if you were Spielberg, you would show, I think that when it went dark, and then it, it becomes light again. I think that a beam came down on him, that this is the light that opens up. Uh, who was the guy? Rembrandt painted a famous painting called uh, The Raising of the Cross. And it showed a bunch of guys raising the cross up. And if you look close at one of the guys pushing Christ up on the cross, he's got a painter's beret. You know who it was? It was Rembrandt. I crucified him. And you see light. Rembrandt used light almost magically. And his face is illumined. And he's looking at you. We did this. And so the light opens. And there is a passageway now from earth to heaven. And it goes through his side. And there's no other way. This is the way you get there. Is that going to remain forever? It's like the Red Sea. You better get your hand in, excuse me. You better get across that sea right now because it's going to close up on the enemy. So get, it stayed open for 20 centuries. But here in a little bit, have y'all read ahead? It's going to close. It's going to be over. And so the way opens up from earth to heaven. Uh, John, he was in the world and the world was made by him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God who believe in his name. I'll bet this. 
We thank, Father, of that old spiritual, sweet little Jesus boy, born to die in the manger. Sweet little holy child, we didn't know who you were. Indeed, Father, you have acted on our behalf in an enchanted book that shows a magic man who does something so preposterous that men cannot stomach it. Something so marvelous that unless you act upon men, they will not come. For as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who were believed in him, who were born not of flesh, nor the will of man, nor of, of uh, the will of a husband, not physical birth, but are born of God. You will impute and make a man righteous. You will impart and make a new man, a new woman. And so if there's one boy, girl, man, woman right here who has never in their life listened to the good news and received Christ as Savior. I ask God not that they would come forward, not that they would do anything. They would stay right where they are and they would open the most uh, battened down of hatches and that is their heart to admit I am not wise, I am not holy and I am not cleansed and I am in desperate need of what you have done and that this hour their prayer would be Lord Jesus, come into my heart. There is room in my heart for you. You come in. You clean me out. You make me new. And you take me home to be with you. I will make my home uh, a hostile place, this world. That I will take what has been a hostile place and make it my birthright. And I'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.